forever. Dog. Welcome to Public Intellectual. Public Intellectual is supported by its listeners. So you can go to patreon.com slash public intellectual and for a small donation, you'll get access to exclusive writings, bonus episodes, and the usual Patreon things. It's patreon.com slash public intellectual. A question I keep coming back to on this podcast is, what is feminism still good for? I don't just mean the movement as it exists, which seems more and more focused on the individual rather than the structural. But what does feminist theory and a feminist worldview still have to offer us as we consider how we want to move into the future? One thing that seemed to sideline feminism and brought it into the neoliberal place it currently occupies is its lack of obvious targets. The big, bulky obstacles to women's liberation, like abortion legalization, financial freedom, educational choice, and so on, have been overcome. These were things that could be legislated. These were things that could be understood by the majority of women, and they could be fixed with reform. Now, though, the obstacles seem to be things like unconscious misogyny and individual sexual predators and an imbalance of men to women in public office. And these aren't things that you can really lobby for or legislate or create a movement of solidarity for. But this is part of the problem with feminism, I think. It focuses right now too much on reforming the world as it exists, not imagining other ways for the world to be. If we think about that, then, the still existing obstacles appear a hundredfold rather than diminishing. The objects of feminist attention and feminist thinking can expand greatly to include urban planning, the housing crisis, public funding of tech companies, the military-industrial complex, prison overpopulation, religious fundamentalism, I mean, everything. And the left itself is devoid of feminist theory, still run primarily by a sort of masculine mindset It has not really integrated feminist and queer worldviews into its thinking about a socialist future for us all to share. So how do we move the gaze from what is to what could be? I talked to Roshan Agnew, a writer and activist who curated the recent Dublin Fringe event, I Am Dynamite, that I participated in, about the state of Irish feminism. Ireland recently won a huge victory in women's rights with the legalization of abortion, which means, like American feminism, there can be a temptation to think of this as an excuse to relax and think of feminism as something that was accomplished rather than an ongoing process. Ireland had these two landmark victories as far as social justice goes with the marriage equality and the abortion legalization. And once these things happen in social movements, um, it can either sort of rally uh, the supporters and, and the people who have been fighting for this for so long, or it can kind of do the opposite, which is like everybody thinks that the job is done and they can just sort of wander off. Um, so 
probably it's too soon to tell what's going on, what's going to happen with Irish feminism. Um, but as far as the gay rights movement and, and I guess not just sort of pro-choice feminism, but feminism in, in general in Ireland, like how are, what's the mood? How is, how are people sort of responding to these big giant victories? Well, I think like extremely positively, I think the, the fact that Ireland has kind of become an example for kind of direct action and, you know, how grassroots movements can actually change the political direction of a country. Because if, if you look back at both the marriage equality movement and the repeal the eighth movement, they started from very kind of marginal fringe groups. People who were going on marches who'd been rallying kind of support for years and not been really getting hurt and that they both managed to kind of you know, bring about landmark uh, constitutional kind of change uh, to the country is phenomenal if you look at it. I mean, the the thing, as you were saying, kind of with uh, the repeal the eighth movement, you know, like total landslide victory, 66% of the country voted in favour of it when, in fact, a lot of the kind of debate around the, um, the referendum and the lead up to it was that it was so um, sort of antithetical to kind of Irish culture and Catholic kind of teaching and just kind of ingrained cultural sort of conservatism and queasiness around abortion that it would never go through. And if you look at like insane statistics that came out afterwards, like something like 92% of girls, like what was it, 18 to 24, came out, voted in favour of abortion. And it was for the first time. But I mean, I think like what's funny is is kind of the perception of Ireland uh, from the outside on the back of these two referenda because it is being seen, you know, on top of that, we have our, our new Taoiseach, uh, Leo Varadkar, who, you know, he's um, he's Indian Irish, he's gay. So we kind of look like some sort of utopic uh, sort of society um, in favour of progress. But I think Ireland, bizarrely as a country, kind of represents um, an issue that we probably have in progressive politics and in left leftist politics at the moment that like when it comes to sort of issues that are kind of identity based, the issues that are kind of um, are about a kind of, you know, um, how one does one put this kind of things that look outwardly progressive Ireland has been very good at dealing with. But if you look at other problems that we have in Ireland, such as, for instance, our corporate tax rate, where essentially you have corporations that are, have been evading taxes and that it's just, it's truly an exploitative system we have in Ireland there at the moment that there is no political kind of incentive and no grassroots movement. There's no incentive really to change that in Ireland at the moment, even though you're in the middle of a housing crisis and stuff like that. And we also have a really, truly brutal um, way of dealing with asylum seekers and illegal immigrants called direct provision, where people are put into kind of um it's kind of uh almost like a fenced off community where they can't work um and so and it, you know there's these aspects um of irish life that kind of have escaped scrutiny particularly from outside ireland because we are so good at projecting a kind of pro progressive image on the back of these two referenda i think and is there some sort of awareness within, um, let's just take 
the feminist movement um, mm. as an example, that things like corporate taxes and migration and and, and ho- the housing situation are part of some sort of feminist agenda, that, it, that these are things that need to be sort of folded into a larger sense of what feminism is and can do? Absolutely. Like, I think what's really interesting that's happening right now, you have it's been kind of heralded as sort of the, the follow-up movement um after repeal because there was this sense of like what is next like because you have this hugely engaged hugely activated cohort um at the moment of young people like what was the next thing they were going to tackle and you know like repeal was not a movement that came out of you know politicians and stuff it came out of grassroots fringe feminist um uh, activists that that's who led and that's who won the referendum these women did and and it was a victory for women and it was a victory for the young and it sort of was seen like where will that energy and where will these people who have literally become so incredibly um adept at you know organizing you know organizing protests organizing marches um organizing all sorts, like who to lobby, who to put pressure on. They've become just so um, skilled at this and over the course of two referenda that it was sort of like, where is this energy going to go to now? Because it can't be wasted. And it looks like at the moment it is going towards the housing crisis we have in Ireland at the moment, which is like sort of unfathomable in a way because um, Ireland's kind of become the poster child. Obviously, it was the poster child for how austerity uh, measures in the EU worked uh, and managed to bring about an incredible recovery. Uh, you know, you had people talking about um, levels of household uh, prosperity that are almost back to Celtic Tiger times to like economic boom times um, in Ireland at the moment. And at the same time, you have sort of the deepest levels of inequality we've experienced in the country for like, I think almost 20 years. It's really, um, it's really a bizarre place right now to, to be in because you have all of this kind of, um, this sense that there has been, um, a moral and ethical kind of switch that the, the Ireland is not the Ireland it was before on the back of these two referenda that we are completely different people and we have a code and a constitution that represents a new Ireland entirely. Um, and, and how I, I kind of wonder to myself, and I guess I've been wondering and asking people like, how are we going to sort of talk about or deal with this inequality we have at the moment while we're sort of so delighted with ourselves with um, this this kind of sense that we have something new here to play with, that this is some, it's a new place that we can kind of mould into what we want it to be. There really is that sense, I think, in Ireland at the moment. And how do we negotiate that with the fact that we do have this, these incredible levels of inequality and a housing crisis that is like, you know, making people literally leave the country um, because there are there aren't enough homes and the homes that are there are um unaffordable to the vast majority of people who aren't uh you know professionals in high paying jobs um so I, I do think it's a really curious time to be irish and to be living in ireland i'm obviously an immigrant and i've i kind of like i've been living out of ireland for almost two years uh i lived in lisbon and now i live in london um and I, like i did find it you know, so strange to be both in Lisbon and in London because having kind of lived, 
lived in Dublin from 18 to 27, 28. I kind of came of age in, in Ireland. And like the idea that you live in a, in a country that kind of is, is sort of, um, ideologically and ethically centrist. Everyone is centrist. That's my sense of kind of Irish politics from like a, a really kind of a molecular level. People tend to be centrist. Um, and, and the idea, like moving to Lisbon and having all of these sort of, um, policies and ways of life that obviously were sort of symptomatic of having a long and deep history of kind of, socialism in the country was like unbelievable to me like I couldn't believe that like art spaces I was going into that clearly didn't make any profit or or were like particularly glitzy or particularly to be like I don't know a source of pride or something that they, they would get like you know um they would get uh tax incentive they were like tax-free they had rent capped spaces you know stuff like that very simple things like that um but but even just in terms of like having a conversation around abortion in Lisbon. So I was living there when um, the last few months of kind of the, the campaign and before uh, it went to a vote and stuff, um, it, the repeal campaign, I mean, for abortion. And, you know, the idea that we'd be having the debates that we were having in Ireland was so profoundly shocking to anybody outside of Ireland. Um which actually goes into like, you know, another part of the conversation in Ireland that yes, we did, we, we did have a massive, two massive successes with marriage equality and the referendum on abortion. But at what cost to the debate? Because a lot of the debate, particularly around the abortion referendum, to my mind, did, you know, it didn't, it didn't push hard enough. I mean, I do understand that like when you are trying to get sort of uh, maximum consensus and because you are actually working towards an, an election and stuff and a vote and it isn't just about, you know, sharing ideas and sort of having a kind of uh, debate about the ethics and morality of, of something that we're, that isn't the point of it, that you are trying to just get as many people to be on your side as possible in order to push through a vote. But, um, you know, there was things like a lot of celebrities coming out and sort of saying, like, vote yes, as in yes to repealing the Eighth Amendment. So yes to uh, pro, like a pro-choice vote. They're saying vote yes, because, um, you know, you're not saying that you're pro-abortion. What you're saying is you respect someone else's right to choose. And, like, I found that really problematic because to me, fundamentally, in Ireland, you know, what we had was a vote on, on women's rights and it was a vote on saying that women are to be respected and to be given equal human rights to everybody else in the nation. And if we're talking about the fact that we're going to eschew the issue of women's, you know, uh, reproductive rights, and we're just going to talk about the fact that you kind of just respect the right to choose, I just found a, a very problematic line of um garnering support and stuff, because it just seemed to want to avoid saying, no, women have the right to have an abortion, they have a right to bodily autonomy. And it isn't about you respecting their, their right to choose even so much. It's about you actually accepting that it's ethically and morally correct to, to give these people this right. And, you know, I mean, I, I, you know, I guess that's, you know, splitting hairs and I don't want to be that person, but um, I guess I am that person. <laughs> Um, yeah, I mean, I, re I remember sort of reading this um, from afar and just sort of 
newspaper article after newspaper article sort of sharing uh, personal women's stories of suffering um, of trying to get an abortion while it was while it was illegal in Ireland. And on one hand, I absolutely believe in the um, power of visibility and making people see what you have gone through. But at the, at the same time, like it reached a point where it, it was beginning to feel exploitative or it was beginning to feel like um, misery porn a little bit. Like the, the media was a little bit too enthusiastic, <laughs> I guess, in their, in their stories of, of, of going to England and women dying and, and so on. Yeah. I mean, I would, um, I would agree. I found it like, you know, I had been kind of engaged with this from a, a, like before it kind of took on sort of the real sort of um, motor and engine it had behind us after the marriage equality referendum. And, um, and I'd been kind of saying, you know, it's weird that people don't come out and talk about it because, you know, the statistics all showed it's like around 10 to 12 women uh, having an abortion a day, 10 of them anyway, traveling abroad to have one and and that it was this kind of silence around it. So it was it did feel like there were it was literally just like a sudden like watershed moment. There's this outpouring, I guess, the kind of. The, the the moment I, I think for me that sort of encapsulated the beginning of this kind of um, sharing of personal stories and stories around uh, abortions was um, this actor and comedian Tara Flynn, who kind of became one of the sort of leaders of the movement. She, alongside Roshan Ingle, who's uh, one of the editors and writers in the Irish Times, um, wrote uh, a big piece around their experiences with abortion and stuff. and um, and from then on, it literally turned into blogs being set up that were about sharing people's stories. There was like a, a Twitter account set up that did a kind of live, live tweeting, um, a girl going, traveling from Dublin to London to have an abortion. And it followed her throughout the entire thing. And it, you know, you know, everyone was following that in Ireland. Um, you had, you know, kind of, blogs and websites that had kind of always had maybe a, a sort of uh, fashion and lifestyle focus, actually setting up entire sections that were about sharing women's experiences with um, with abortion and stuff like and, and I did feel um, very I, at the beginning of that, I have to say it felt really empowering and it felt amazing to me to be um in that moment, like I at the time was like running a little um, confessional zine um, and we did an issue around that. And we had like one of the senators who was the first person who tried to kind of bring the issue of the, of the Eighth Amendment kind of up in Ireland and stuff. She wrote for it and we didn't have as many actually um, personal stories in it because I kind of thought we'd hit the kind of critical mass of pain as a nation. Like we just heard so much about it. Like it was this sense, um, this sense that like the personal story had just gone overboard. And I just, um, and I, I, I mean, this is a very personal reaction, but I found it actually quite, hard to connect uh, with a lot of the stories towards the end of it. And that's hopefully not a particularly cold thing to say, but I did. I kind of found that I had reached saturation point with a lot of these personal stories and having, you know, personal stories myself connected to it, which I like chose not to particularly get into or share um, publicly and stuff. I, 
I, I wondered in myself what that was, my kind of reluctance at a certain point to engage with these stories anymore or or just it wasn't even a reluctance. It was just literally kind of it didn't touch me anymore. But also absolutely this idea that they were being entirely exploited by the media and stuff and exploited also not even exploited, I wouldn't like to say that, but the actual movements themselves depended on these personal stories. Like the statistics that came out after we won the referendum showed, uh, I think that it's 70 or something shocking. I have it written down here. Oh yeah. Three quarters of people who voted yes. So voted in favor of a repeal of the eighth amendment. Uh, three quarters of them have been influenced by personal story. So like as much as maybe I, 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 I do find it um problematic that kind of source of pain porn as you were saying like it, it actually um you know had profound uh impact on people in this referendum and you know particularly even with the marriage referendum before that like the rhetoric around that was much easier much more palatable in many ways because particularly the cleverness with which it was framed it was you know the whole idea was about yes to love that what you were voting on was people's um, the possibility for people to love each other properly. That was the idea and that was how they campaigned on it. And that was a much easier thing to vote on, um, obviously for lots of people. Um, but, but yeah, I guess it was this idea of how do you, um, get away from kind of, how do you almost make it a non-political issue? I think it was very much kind of how a lot of, how do you take it away from the politics and it turn it, make it personal? And, um, I was actually reading, this is a bit of a tangible, like I was reading, um, Masha Gessen in the New Yorker and she was talking about kind of the Christine Blasey Ford testimony. And she's talking about this idea of the feminization of politics that's going on at the moment, which is kind of, um, I guess it's sort of a different way of describing maybe identity politics in some ways, but I much prefer her way of kind of, um, talking about it and kind of, um, putting a spotlight on it was just this idea that like how much of our politics now falls into um or the way we filter politics is through this idea of personal voices and particularly the voices of the previously exploited maybe the previously marginalized and stuff and how it's kind of we just drifted away from any idea of kind of um a kind of ethics driven or ideologically driven politics and it just seems to rest so much on these kind of personal stories and the emotions being at the center of political decisions um and i and i do certainly think that in ireland that is what we're on the back of we're we're living at a moment where emotions have been at the center of our uh political lives really for the last like six years yeah i think there's been at least there's been this debate within um, a sort of American feminism for a while, which is the sort of exploitation of so-called women's media of women's painful stories, right? So the, the personal essay industry, essentially, which for a long time wasn't even directed in any particular way. It, it was just sort of, um, so, so it wasn't uh, experienced as we're using this for some sort of uh, uh political gain or directing it at a, as at a specific campaign it's just um no we want we want to we just want to hear about how you had an incestuous relationship with your father and nothing will ever come of it and now your name is always associated with that forever and ever um and you get paid like 20 cents a word for it right like so 
there's certainly been sort of within the women's media this this tendency toward the the personal story and and the self exploitation that I guess comes along with that of um, participating in that. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it's that kind of exogene. Um, what was it? It happened to me. Kind of yeah. like exemplifies that so well, and it's just literally the most embarrassing things. They're going to haunt you for the rest of your life, and you're just like, why? Are you doing this to yourself? But I've also like, I kind of, I used to be a massive fan of the personal essay. As I was saying, like I, I used to run a confessional zine and stuff and I've kind of come full circle on it. I kind of do find, find the kind of focus on the personal story so hard to swallow now. And I find it, and it is probably because I went into it so deeply. I guess that's kind of what you do. You just then hop out and go the complete extreme, uh, complete opposite extreme. But like, yeah, I mean, particularly around women, it is, it kind of started in such a different way. It was so much about kind of giving a voice to, to, to women who weren't being heard, whose personal stories were not being given a platform, um, you know, and that's kind of more of a second wave feminism kind of approach to the personal essay. And, and that's where it came out of. But like the reality is that we have, we live in a completely different world to the world that the personal essay kind of came out of, I guess. Um, and that it, it doesn't serve the same function of kind of bringing personal story, women's personal stories to light, giving them a platform because the personal is political. And that is the way um, it, it works. I think there has to be an acknowledgement that there is something slightly seedy almost in the way we're using women's personal stories. Um, I mean, what's funny in the Irish context, actually, about the personal story, I had a kind of experience with this recently, um, which really brought it to kind of light for me. There's uh, like obviously we had the Pope's visit, right? A couple of weeks ago. And it was again, like another kind of amazing moment in Ireland, you know, that, um, when he'd been in Ireland the last time 40 years ago, it was just like million. It was something outrageous, like a million people, something like that descended on this, the Phoenix Park, this park in the middle of Dublin. And it was just like one of these kind of historical moments that everybody who had been living in Ireland at that time remembered, you know? Um, and then this time, obviously, there was huge amount of protests. There was um, ve- very few people going to a lot of these things. And it was just like mired in scandal coming out of like um, Pennsylvania and stuff. So it was just like a complete shit show, practically, the Pope's visit. It was like a kind of PR disaster. Um, but what was really interesting was I was working with Italian TV and we were kind of trying to do a piece around uh, sort of the issues around the Pope's visit. And it turned into kind of going uh, and speaking to a lot of, you know, my role was kind of finding people who were survivors of clerical sex abuse and talking to them. And, um, and I, and I, and it was just really, um, awful to be on the inside of that. Like I really felt like I was exploiting these people and particularly because if you're doing TV, the person will be telling you an utterly grotesque and horrendous story about being, you know, you know, raped as a, as a child by a priest and then the camera's off or something. You go, sorry, stop there. Can you start from the beginning again? And you're just like going, oh my God, how are we doing this to these people? Like they're almost crying and we're just like, but yeah, there's, there certainly is that idea of 
of exploiting people's opinions, the only way we can reach to like viewers or readers is through the most extreme narrative we can find. Um, because everything else, everyone else is, is, is what unmoved by anything else. I don't even know if that's, I don't know if that's true, but it's certainly the way the media carries on. Um, and it's certainly, I felt that particularly around the child sex abuse scandals in Ireland, but it also feeds into this idea that actually Ireland seems to be a bizarrely like, tr- like a place that it ha- is experiencing or has been experiencing or is the victim of kind of collective trauma at the moment on the back of all of these kind of scandals and stuff between kind of clerical sex abuse, where they say that one in five or one in four people have been touched by clerical sex abuse in Ireland to stuff like, yeah, 10, 10 women having to travel abroad to have abortions. Like that just does feel like there's some form of, um, there's, you know, like there was actually a lot of pieces written about the kind of hatred of women and children on, on behalf of the state, like historicals, just like hatred and violence against women and children in the Irish state, which is just um, weird to think of, but also totally true. Yeah. And, you know, one of the things that I was sort of thinking about when I was reading a lot of these stories was how... um it wasn't just the the pain of having to arrange a very expensive trip uh, in order to get a procedure in a foreign country where maybe you don't know anybody and, and so on, um, but how dehumanizing the experience was. Um, just the actual procedure in England in a place where it's legalized, um, how horrifying that experience is, which is something that um, is part of the sort of Well, it's definitely in private conversation a part of the sort of American um, experience of abortion, but it's not part of the feminist conversation. Like, there's no larger conversation within American feminism to be like, how can we make abortion not this completely (laughs) terrifying experience, right? Yeah, it's actually so true. I. I don't know. How do you do that? Like, um, do you have like nicer furnishings in the waiting room? Like, I, like, <laughs> what what do you do about making abortion um, more more human or c- cutesier almost? But like, at the same time, there's something I find almost reassuring in the fact that an abortion is treated the same way a broken arm is treated. Um, like the idea that like it doesn't have to be such a kind of political issue. It doesn't have to be a kind of massively traumatizing thing. Of course, it's very difficult. And of course, there's an acknowledgement of that. But maybe um, the fact that it, it, it doesn't get treated in a different way um, and there is something clinical around it that it makes it maybe it kind of takes the kind of I don't know, it it it, it takes the kind of charge out of it a little bit but no I do agree with you a lot of the stories were very much kind of characterized by sort of aside from the the politics being fucked it was really about kind of how utterly like um sad and lonely and um and kind of yeah a cold uh unpleasant experiences the these abortions were um and i do agree that there's kind of an evasion of talking about how how we can make that um better for women i wonder if it comes into the same way there's a kind of there is a kind of a, a kind of queasiness about talking about exactly maybe 
what um, the abortions entail in the, the same way there's that kind of really ghoulish kind of um, obsession with it on the kind of pro-life side. I, there is maybe on the pro-choice side a kind of an unwillingness to get into it too much because it is quite unpleasant at the end of the day. Um yeah, I don't know. I mean, I certainly know that in the States, for instance, uh, you know, a lot of the things that have been done now, and I know that in Ireland at the moment, because the, the Eighth Amendment did actually get repealed last week officially from the Constitution, like, you know, we're, there's a lot of talk about implementing um, policies and laws, and that it's going on in the States already about kind of there being um, it being illegal for people to protest within a certain distance of a clinic or a hospital that will be carrying out abortions. So I, I do know that there is a big, um, a big move towards making it, um, as pleasant or at least as unconfrontational or as, uh, unproblematic as possible for women to have abortions in Ireland. And also very importantly in Ireland, this actually is outside of the, how do we make it nicer and how do we talk about making it less of a lonely female experience? There's the, in, in what's important in Ireland at the moment is that they are definitely making sure that it's going to be a free service, um, which goes into another kind of problem, perhaps in the way we talked about the abortion issues in Ireland, that was very much kind of, it was devoid of discussing how it affects classes differently, um, obviously. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, I don't know. What's your sense in, in, in the States and stuff? Does American, why do you think American feminism doesn't talk more about the experience and talk more about trying to make it a, a, a less unpleasant experience for women? I think it's because of the power of the the pro the pro life movement in America, which is so um, sort of unhinged and has taken this position that women are victimized um, by their by abortion providers and um, that they suffer through the process, and so there there can be this desire to present it as no, it's just a medical procedure. It's like having a tooth pulled, which is a metaphor I've, I've read from several different feminist writers, and it just seems um, it seems super delusional if they've ever had one. But um, it does have this kind of um, needing to to take the sort of. Um, opposite position of the pro-life movement to be like, no, everyone's fine. We're all fine. Because if you sort of like cede that territory and, and admit that some people have a difficult time with it or that it is a more sort of emotional experience than having a tooth pulled or whatever, um, that that will somehow delegitimize our position. Yeah. But I think talking about the complications of it is the only way to legitimize um what we're what we believe in and what we say um mm. and sort of um treating it as if um we let our guard down even a second uh to the enemy is um is going to take everything away from us like that that i think is a is a kind of um not productive place to be in i mean especially because um it allows um, sort of politicians to declare themselves as being pro-choice, but without ever doing anything to back that up, because you know, as sort of access to abortion services continue to erode in America, um, and it, and it's getting to crisis points in several states in America, um, people can sort of say, 
you know, oh, I, I'm pro-choice and I'll, I'll defend Roe v. Wade or whatever, but there's never this plan about actually sort of um, helping the process as it exists right now. And having a deeper conversation about what actually, yeah, the experience is like. I mean, what you're saying there about the idea that if we do actually talk about the the reality of the kind of trauma and pain that is part of abortion, um, it is about betraying our side a little bit. And it is yeah. about delegitimizing the argument that comes into like, I guess, so much of so much of the movement at the moment that there are so many things you can't unpick because there's a fear of unraveling the whole the whole thing or the whole argument or the whole um, stand and movement. But yeah, I mean, in Ireland, like, you know, you're talking about sort of the erosion of um, abortion rights in, in the States. And certainly, you know, that is something that is very much felt in Europe at the moment, too. Particularly, you have so many far right movements gaining ground, gaining um, sort of, uh, you know, votes and elections, winning elections in Europe at the moment, particularly you know, look at places like Poland and Italy and stuff, you know, Poland in particular, just you know, is has had to fight continually to actually have a total ban on abortions placed again. I know you had someone on actually recently. I was listening to to her. I can't remember her name. She was amazing though. She's talking about politics in Poland at the moment. But like in Italy, like I'm 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 half Italian and like one of the shocking things um in Italy is, you know, there was a celebration this year of forty years of abortion rights in Italy. And Italy is suffering from an incredible crisis in um, conscientious objection, where you actually have, particularly in the South, from Rome down, you have something like 92% of doctors will not carry out abortions because they're conscientious objectors. So they are allowed legally in the Italian state to say, we can't carry out abortions because it's against my personal you know, ethics, moral code, belief system, whatever it is. And it literally means you have... You know, like what you were talking about in the states that like in certain states, it's got to crisis point where women actually can't don't and don't really have access to abortion and stuff Um that like they, you know, initially women have to actually travel from one end of the country to the to the other in order to access abortion services. And on top of that, there's waiting times, wait times, which have, you know. Are, are kind of an obstructionist way of making it even harder for women to actually gain access to abortion. And I mean, it will be interesting to see in Ireland how it plays out um, in the next couple of years, if there will be a problem with conscientious objection, which I know is something that's very much in the debate uh, at the moment. And um, whether because of also we've had a kind of a crisis in the kind of public health system there, the HSE and stuff, where there have been like in anywhere else where there have been issues with kind of closing down rural clinics and stuff, you know, what will access to abortion look like in Ireland at the moment? And will will feminists and people who worked on the repeal movement stay on top of it and my sense is they absolutely will there certainly seems to be a lot of outrage and anger at the moment which will keep people very focused and on top of these issues and sort of speaking about sort of delegitimizing our position um 
you know, when, at least in America, when the hardest push for marriage equality was going on, um, sort of within sort of state referendums up until the Supreme Court decision kind of made it nationwide, um, there was this sort of very simplified version of why we were supporting gay rights or what we were, what we were asking for. Um, which was, you know, the, the far right sort of presenting it like all of these are, these are perverts and deviants and, uh, and, you know, all their sort of bizarre sexual practices, you know, we might as well let people marry dogs and whatever. Um, and, but then, so the, the, um, the response from, um, the gay rights movement for the most part, or uh, at least I heard this a lot, um, was that, no, we just want to get married. We just want to be like you. Um, and we just want, um, you know, monogamy and all this kind of thing. And, um, and a lot of, you know, uh, people within sort of queer rights movement were kind of horrified that this was the argument that they were putting forth rather than it's none of your fucking business. <laughs> No, absolutely. I mean, it is, but this is the idea with both. This is the idea of when you're trying to win elections, when you're trying to win referenda and you are trying to bring in marginalized groups or groups that were maybe radical or queer and you're trying to get people to vote for them, you have to kind of vanillaize everybody a little bit. And like, certainly in Ireland, I think there was a sense, there was a lot of talk around kind of, kind of like, you know, why are we fighting so hard to be normies? Like, I don't like, and the, the kind of like, can we not carry out this conversation without giving up on our queerness, without giving up on our weirdness, without having to kind of, you know, try to fit into something that we've never wanted to fit into. But like, What's ironic also about, I guess, in Ireland, this thing is that like um, it goes into like there being anyway a centrist kind of mentality in Ireland. It, go, it faded in anyway with the with the fact that the recovery was starting to pick up and people were starting to make money again and were affluent and comfortable and stuff. And it did have the, the, these things kind of coalesced to like in my feeling about it was to kill Dublin queerness, particularly where like I was living, like it did take out the transgression, the idea that it, you know, you know, the, the wonderful thing about the gay movement and stuff and about gay culture and queer culture has always been the idea of like, you pushed us to the margins, we made the margins the best place to be. And we have like celebrated being marginal and being, you know, queer, weird, outside the norms, everything. And that it certainly felt like we lost a lot of that in, in Ireland and in the Ireland in the Irish kind of gay scene. I mean, I think it's kind of maybe um something, you know, that that is has been going on everywhere. Like how do you you know, it's so it's so weird to be fighting to be accepted as 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 normal or equal, but you're fighting to be accepted as equal. And so much of it turns into fighting to be kind of normal. And then you're just like, but what gets lost in that process a little bit? Because certainly we had kind of gay nights and queer nights that kind of shut down and stopped kind of being there. And I did. There was a sense, I know, among my friends and peers that it was kind of part of this sort of um this push to make queer culture more mainstream, um, which I certainly think there's um, room for for there to be a sort of radical, totally not um, sort of mainstream queer culture in Ireland, particularly at the moment or anywhere, because I certainly I certainly see that being a problem outside of Ireland, too. 
I guess what is sort of next on the agenda for for Irish feminism? Um, I mean, the housing crisis is kind of interesting. At least you know, um, I I know so many sort of um, Irish expats um, because they they've just sort of been priced out of. Um, out of Ireland, like, but specifically like subculture, the, um, anybody who, who can't have afford or a lot of people who can't afford to just be part of the mainstream culture or too weird or too, you know, fucked up, um, to, to be part of the, the culture would normally sort of fall into some sort of subculture. They can't, it seems like the subculture has been priced out of Ireland. And so they sort of, in, a lot of them are here in Berlin or wherever. Um, so how how does that affect social movements in Ireland? Does that sort of like harden its centrist um, position, do you think? Or because it seemed like both um, marriage equality and uh, the abortion rights referendum um, were fueled in a, in a, a in a noticeable way by people coming home, um, people who have been living overseas coming home in order to take these votes. So what's the influence of that? Big time. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I mean, this is a question that I think is like um, being discussed a lot at the moment. There was kind of, there's been a lot of talk essentially about, as you were calling it, the kind of the weirdos and the subcultures not having a space anymore and having to be expats in other places, but also obviously being the people who come back and like and sway big votes like they did in the last year referenda. But um certainly like it is a weird thing that's happening in Ireland at the moment where it is for the most part people who are part of the kind of the precariats, who are creatives cannot afford to live there anymore and like this kind of has come has been like it's really something that's being talked about a lot um at the moment and that like we had a kind of quite prominent musician David Kitt come out and write a big uh piece about why he's emigrating and you know it's kind of it was, it was sort of surprising and shocking to people that someone who was you know uh from the outside seemed to be kind of so um successful choosing to not live in Ireland anymore and moving out because he can't hack it uh, either anymore but like we had this debate as part of um i'm dynamite the event you were at and um and the, the i think one of the questions that came up was you know the the people the people who are creating these policies the people who are not who are essentially um being ineffective at governing us and being ineffective at dealing with the housing crisis and are not really creating um a society, particularly Dublin, I'm, I'm, I am a bit Dublin centric, but that's where I, I kind of live. And, you know, it's where, you know, highest density of people in Ireland are, is, but like Dublin in particular is somewhere that like has been mismanaged to the point that it is going to turn into a sort of corporate zombie, uh, land soon like it is just um shocking what's happening there in terms of just like if you look at urban planning if you look at just like and the housing crisis and and you look at just sort of the cost of um anything there it is just turned into and then you look at something sorry as simple as even the way like very small elements of life whether it's our drink licenses or whether it's like licenses to do like one-off events and stuff the way everything is dealt with um in in Ireland at the, in Dublin in particular is just kind of shocking in that it is 
continually and repeatedly saying that culture has no place in this city and in this society. And it is going to have a devastating effect on Dublin and on Ireland at large, because it, precisely what you're saying, what we're losing is we're losing the weirdos, the artists, the the people who have different lifestyles, who don't aren't on like high paid kind of professional salaries. Um, they aren't going to be there anymore. They're not going to be the fabric of the society because the, we have been excluded, essentially. We can't live there anymore. And I do think you're going to see it have a, a kind of profound impact just on kind of the culture generation, like as in like what is Ireland generating arts, arts wise and culture wise. And I think it's going to become less and less vibrant, less and less interesting, less and less diverse, because that is what, you know, these policies and the housing crisis is doing. It's like it's creating a more homogeneous, more kind of um, middle class Ireland. And and it is going to have really damaging impact. And I mean, you know, um going back to the idea of kind of how it'll change politics, because we're not going to be there anymore in order to vote um, on these things. I, I don't, you know, I don't know, because it seems to me that like, you know, the people who are, who are making these decisions don't seem to be even remotely aware of this idea that there's something lost by having people like me not want to live in Ireland anymore, not want to live in Dublin anymore. They don't have any political impetus or uh, desire to to keep us there um and 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 there and you know the things that we could change now that these two referenda have gone sort of the housing crisis and i suppose something like direct provision and trying to kind of bring about an end to kind of the corporate tax um system that we have in ireland like there isn't any political impetus to kind of bring these up anyway so like I don't know if it makes a difference whether people like myself are there anymore or not. I certainly know it doesn't make any difference to any of the political parties in in Ireland. It does not feel like there is anyone who's decided that they're going to champion sort of people like me or people who are in the middle of having, um, you know, and being evicted, people who are struggling to find a place to rent, people who are having to emigrate because they can no longer afford to kind of pay six euro for a pint and pay like 750 euro to live in a kind of shithole. You know, like it, it is really weird because I feel like there, it's a moment of anger and a volume of kind of, you know, well-educated, articulate, politically active young voters who do not have a champion. And I find it very odd that we are still seeing something like the housing crisis being fought by people like Take Back the City, you know, grassroots activists, you know, who come from like kind of some of the squatting culture. They come from all sorts of, you know, fringe marginal groups. And you still don't have a champion um in Ireland for kind of left-leaning politics that would, I think, garner a huge amount of support in this current moment. Um, and it is really bizarre. It seems like someone should step up because it would just be clever, even for themselves. Forever Dog. This has been a Forever Dog production. Executive produced by Dog. Brett Boehm, Joe Cilio, and Alex Ramsey. For more original podcasts, please visit foreverdogpodcasts.com and subscribe to our shows on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Keep up with the latest Forever Dog news by following us on Twitter and Instagram 
at Forever Dog Team and liking our page on Facebook.